Thank you, Sue. That's a meaningful song for me. Do take a seat. Do take a seat and welcome this evening. It's a very meaningful song to me. It's a song I chose uh, at my baptism to be sung uh, when I was baptised, that song. And actually, this evening, there's a little phrase in there, to possess by faith what I could not earn, to possess by faith what I could not earn, which is actually a brilliant summary of what we're going to look at this evening. So if you've got a, a Bible there, I'd love for you to open it up to Galatians. If you haven't, as always, that's totally fine, because I'll read what we're going to be looking at here. Galatians chapter 3, it's page 1170, page 1170, if you are... Uh, in one of these turquoise church Bibles, Galatians chapter 3, um, sentences 23 to 29. That's the paragraph I'd like to read. That's where we've got to in our journey through this letter. It's the very earliest letter written in the Bible, about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Galatians. It actually predates Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, though they record uh, events that were earlier, they weren't written down until later on. So this uh, letter that we call Galatians is the earliest part that we have in the Bible, written by Paul to a church that he'd planted uh, probably uh, six or 12 months earlier. And then he writes to them. And in this section, his big question is this, is what difference does faith make? I'm going to read it in a second, but I want you to have that question in mind as we read it. What difference does faith make? What actual difference, real tangible difference, does having faith in Jesus, what difference does it make to us as human beings? Does it really make any foundational difference at all? What difference does faith make? And the reason why we know it's about faith is because five times in the first couple of sentences, he uses that very word. Twice in verse 23, before the coming of this faith, until the faith that was to come. Again in verse 24, justified by faith. Again in 25, now that this faith has come. And then again in verse uh, 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. What difference does actual faith make? Let me read it and then we'll have a, have a look at it, shall we? This is what it says. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What difference does this faith, this coming faith, make in real life. And some of us will feel that we have this faith. We have what we call a faith in Jesus. Other of us are on a journey towards that. Other of us aren't really sure about it. I think here in Paul's mind, faith here is like a key that opens up a treasure box containing precious things that have been looked locked away for a long time. If you look at the sentence just before our sentence 22, you, you see that language. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Or look again at sentence 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody until the law locked up. You see that repeated phrase of locked up there? 
He's imagining faith here as a key that can come along and unlock this lockbox. And in that are the precious promises of God that can suddenly be unleashed and experienced. That's what faith does. It unlocks these um, secrets, these treasures, and makes them real to us. What are these treasures that faith unlocks? Well, it's a new identity. It's a transition of a new identity. In sentence 23 and 20 to 25, and I want to move at a reasonable pace through these sentences so we can land on some application this evening. But in sentences 23 and 25, he describes, if you like, who we are if we don't have this faith in Christ. And this might describe us. It certainly would have described us before we trusted in Jesus. I was baptised in 2000. Margaret was asking me about that earlier. 2000, I was baptised. I became a Christian in 1998. I baptised in 2000. So if you like, for me, verses uh, 23 to 25, describe me before 1998. February 19th, 1998 was the first time I came to realise that I trusted Jesus. And it's twofold. It's that we are imprisoned... (coughs) And we are punished. It's pretty bleak. Imprisoned and punished. Look at sentence 23. Before Before the coming of this faith, before this trust in Jesus came to you, Alex, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until that faith was to come and be revealed. Do you see that? Locked up, held in company. You're imprisoned without a real faith in Jesus. It's like being imprisoned. But secondly, it's like being punished. Look at sentence 24. Uh, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Before the faith was here, we were under a guardian. You see that word twice there, this idea of guardian. Now, guardian has reasonably positive connotations in the English language, doesn't it? A a guardian. Hannah and I are special guardians to some children that we we care for and look after. It has very positive connotations, doesn't it? Actually, here, the original idea behind this word here is actually pretty negative. It's a strict disciplinarian. It's someone who forces you to behave against your will. It's a kind of like anti-hero to Mary Poppins. If Mary Poppins went evil, that's what the Guardian is. So you can picture that in your minds. It's pretty terrifying, isn't it? Or, or, or I think I went to school. I grew up in West Africa, a place called Ghana. Uh, I was there from three till about nine or 10 or 11, something like that. I grew up at the international school in Ghana. And there was a head teacher or deputy head teacher. I can't remember what she was, but she was the one you were sent to when you were in trouble. I never, ever had a lesson taught by her. She never taught me she was a disciplinarian. She was terrifying. I don't know if we've got any head teachers who are like that in this room right now. Margaret was like that. I was thinking of Mark, but I'm sure you're not like, I'm sure you're not this disciplinarian head teacher. They get sent to a deputy. But I remember, I remember in Ghana, we used to get caned. I, I remember people would get caned. And I, I uh, was caned just once, just once was I caned um, because there was a goat in the playground and they'd painted a white circle around this goat, which was basically the end of the goat's tether. And you weren't allowed to go across the white line into where the goat could roam. Now, who tethers a goat in a playground? I mean, what's going on there? But my friends dared me to step over the line. And so I ran into the middle to try and touch the post where the goat was tethered, which was a big mistake. And this Billy gave me a great big 
wallop up the butt. And, and oh, it, was, it was terrible. But out of insult to injury, they then came me for it. And I was sent to this disciplinarian, this lady. And what, I'll just carry on this story because it, it's just, you'll understand so much more about me now. Uh, by the end of this story, therapy is needed. What they'd do is the whole, whole school would stand in your classroom. You'd have to stand at your desk in your classroom, the whole school. And they'd switch the tannoy system on. And you would be in this, this, this teacher's, this disciplinarian's office, and she'd cane you across the palm of your hand. And if you flinched, because there was a technique, wasn't there, where if you got the timing just perfect, and you went, kind of went down with the cane, as the cane didn't hurt as much. If she realized, then you'd get double the strokes. And it, she'd, she'd broadcast your screams of pain across the school as all the pupils <laughs> listened. Um, yeah, brings back fond memories, Pete, does it? I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's the idea of this word guardian here. That's the idea of this word guardian. So as he starts, he's saying, look, before faith came, and do you see that language? Before the coming of this faith, in verse 23, before the coming of this trust in Jesus, uh, until that faith was to be revealed, before you trust Jesus, which could describe some of us now, we are imprisoned, in, in locked up, and we are under this kind of punishment. It's pretty bleak language, isn't it? It's pretty bleak language. But then notice the transition of sentence 25. Now that this faith has come. Now this could be a big moment for some of us, saying actually I'm going to try and trust Jesus in a real, true, radical way. I'm going to try and have faith in Jesus. Now this faith has come. You know, I've taught this passage before in context, uh, university, I taught it most recently about six or eight months ago, uh, back end of last year, where the vast majority of people in the room wouldn't call themselves Christians. And I laboured this. Now, right now, right now as I'm talking, this faith could come to you and see what this faith's difference will make. What he does now in sentences 26 to 29, the next little bit there, is described now what this faith brings, what, what it unlocks, the treasures it releases, if you like. It's who we are now. Um, and notice as well here um, that where the emphasis in the first half was in faith, five times I said, didn't I? Faith, 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 faith. Now, five times, it's Christ. It's Christ, 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 Christ. Uh, look at sentence 26. So, in Christ... Uh, look at sentence 27, baptised into Christ, clothed yourselves with Christ. The very end of sentence 28, one in Christ. Sentence 29, you belong to Christ. He's clarifying it's not just faith, it's faith in Christ. You see the flow. Faith dominates the first paragraph, in Christ dominates the second paragraph. And the difference faith makes, according to Paul here, is threefold. Three new identities. No longer imprisoned and punished. Now, 26, we are children of God. Children of God. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 26, you could underline it in every colour imaginable. It's so beautiful. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. No longer imprisoned, and therefore, if you like, relating to God as the jailer keeping you locked up, rightly so. No longer punished under a caning guardian and disciplinarian. 
now children of God. Imagine my, how different my experience was standing in that deputy head teacher's office as she caned me and my suppressed screams of agony echoed through the corridors of the school. At the end of the school day, it was done. Versus 10 minutes later, as I flopped into my mum's hands at the school gate, as she hugged me, looked at the impressive goat bruise on my butt and the very painful bruise on my hand and cared for me. That's the transition difference in that one sentence, isn't it? Between under a guardian who is punishing you and a child of God who is loving you because you have trusted Jesus, because of faith. Now this faith has come. You're a child of God. Has that faith come to you? Are you trusting Jesus? The second thing here, sentence 28, is we are now one in Christ. Not just a child of God, children of God. We're one in Christ. Look at sentence 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying that our differences somehow are eradicated. Of course, some of us are men and some of us are women. Of, of course, some of us have one kind of job and some another kind of God. That is, that is who God has made us. He wants us to in, embrace that. But what he's saying in terms of how we relate to one another, our identity in Christ usurps all of our other identities. There, there is greater unity because we are in Christ, then there is disunity because one of us is slave and one of us is free. Or one of us is a man or one of us is a woman. Those differences are encased within the unity of the fact we are now one kind of people, if you like, in Christ. And then lastly, he says, we're heirs of the promise, sentence 29. As this faith comes to us, now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We're first children of God. We're second one in Christ. But third, sentence 29, we're heirs of the promise is the way I phrased it. It says this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, Abraham way back in Genesis 12, right near the beginning of the Bible, was the recipient of the great promise of God. God promised him a number of things. He said, one, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and you're going to be a great blessing to everyone else, and you're going to live in a great land. That was the promise made to Abraham, never fully achieved through the generations that followed Abraham until the nation of Israel, and never really fully achieved in the nation of of Israel. And he says, actually, no, through faith in Christ Jesus, you become the heirs, the recipients of that promise. You become ones who are given the great blessing of a land, the eternal place of heaven, the great blessing of being a people, all that multitude who are in heaven. You are the ones who receive that great promise. All that was promised to Abraham, you are recipients of. So let me pause and just get our wits around us as, as we come into land. A little kind of, a bit of a gobbit, really, of, of some pretty packed sentences that Paul writes there. He's answering the question, what does faith do? What difference does faith make? His analogy is there are all these promises locked up, locked up. And faith is the key that unlocks all those promises and releases them that you can reach into that great box of treasures and, and wear them and put them on and enjoy them. And what these, what these promises are is this new identity 
that no longer are we imprisoned, verse 23, or punished, verse 24, 5, and 6, no longer under a jailer or a disciplinarian, a guardian, but actually now this faith has come, verse 25, that's the turning point. Now this faith has come. As you trust in Jesus, you are children of God, you are one in Christ, and you are heirs of the promise. And so I land with quite a simple pair of questions, really. One is, is it verse 25 that you really need to take on board? And I know many of us have been going to church for many, many years. And so this might seem odd, but I know what it's like to, to journey through church for a long time and actually never really go, now this faith has come to me. So is it verse 25? Now this faith has come. Has it come to you? Have you trusted Jesus? Or is it just a culturally accepted thing, a family inherited thing, the thing you've done forever and you've forgotten why you did it? Or has this faith come? Is tonight the night it arrives in your life? And secondly, if you can say, no, this faith has come. I, can, I have trusted Jesus. I've transitioned out of verses 23, 4, and 5 and into verses 26, 7, 8, and 9. Well, are you living like a child of God? Are you living like someone who is one in Christ, where your distinctions do not matter because of your unity in Jesus? Are you living like someone who actually has grabbed those promises that you are recipients of? And next week, I forget who's preaching next week, Jeff's in the preacher's seat, so yeah, it could be you. Yeah, should have a sweat on. But the next chapter, uh, the next paragraph next week, really digs into that in detail. It starts to say, how does the rubber hit the road? How do you live as a child of God? How do you live as an heir of the promise? How do you live as one who is in Christ? So if you'd like a bit more nitty-gritty nooks and crannies of life sermon, you'll need to come back next week. It's good that. There you go. So shall I pray for us? I love this passage, as I say, and I think it's beautifully summarised by that little phrase out of the song, All I Once Held Dear, to, where it says, to possess by faith what I could not earn. I am a child of God. That could never have been earned, but I possess it by faith. We are one in Christ Jesus. That could never be earned, but I possess it by faith. I'm an heir who will receive all of the promises given to Abraham, something I could never earn, but I possess by faith. Let me pray. Now, my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess, possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a 315 which is a fantastic song to conclude with. I will sing the wondrous story. Uh, and uh, we can sing it to each other and we can sing it for ourselves as well. The wondrous story of what Christ has done for us. Three, one, five. So shall we stand and sing? Thanks, Sue.